0: 2021 includes the 50th anniversary of both the Apollo 14 and Apollo 15 moon landing missions, and so to talk about those, we are joined by legendary flight director Jerry Griffin.
1: He led his gold team during some of the key moments of Apollo 14, including the landing on the moon, and was the lead flight director for Apollo 15, so we're really lucky to have him this week.
0: Plus, we'll do a roundup of this week's launches.
1: Many thanks to those who signed up to our Patreon this week to get your founders' pins or those who purchased a pin from our website. My post office was very happy, as I hope you will be after you've listened to episode 38 of the Space and Things podcast.
0: You're listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles
2: and Emily Carney.
1: I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. How are you doing, Emily? I'm doing great.
0: I'm doing great. It's Tuesday. Things are good. So I'm doing good. How are you doing?
1: Excellent. Yeah, I'm not too bad. Not too bad. Uh, so much, so many new stories again. Exactly, <laughs> so a lot through. has happened. Uh, but I'm excited about this uh, this week's episode as well. Uh, I saw you had a new blog post this week, a delve into the archive of Phil Chapman, right? Yes. You found a memo he wrote predicting doom within the space world.
0: Yeah, I found a letter. I found it a few months ago, and I was like, "Man, should I publish this?" Um, I found it when he was he passed away on April 6th. I think April 5th or 6th, and I found it when he was still alive. I was like, man, should I publish this? And um, I didn't publish it because he passed away, obviously, but I was like, I just thought it was like an incredible document about that era that he was in and how he kind of saw what was coming, you know? So Mm. I had to write about it, and I love the look of the the memo because it looks like somebody tried to hide it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it looked like somebody tried to put it like, man, this is too this is too much. We got to put it in behind a water cooler or something and forget about it. It's one of the most beautifully worded and most blunt memos I've ever read, and I just had to share it. I thought it was awesome.
1: Yeah, it's a great read. Uh, also, I saw another, talking of great reads, I saw another piece of news which uh, was about Kayla Barron, the astronaut candidate who's been given a crew. Now, this is another thing that connects to you because... She had a very similar job to yours in the Navy. So it's one of those stories where you could have
0: been her? Yeah, very similar. She was an officer and I'm enlisted. I think she went to the Naval Academy, whereas even though I didn't, um, she was, she. I think she majored in uh, nuclear power systems or nuclear power engineering, uh, which I, I didn't, I, I wouldn't say I'm a nuclear engineer, but I did work in a, a nuclear power plant, which was uh, kind of neat. And um, she also was, I think, one of the first women to to serve on a submarine, which, uh, yeah, you don't hear that a lot. That's, uh, I think that's probably the ideal environment for somebody who wants to go to space, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I never served on a submarine. I was on a carrier, but I have trained in a submarine plane. And I tell you, I, I don't know how people can do that because it, it is extremely isolating. And I'm saying that as somebody who was pretty much isolated for six months, so... Kudos to her. I think that's awesome. We have some of the same heritage, and I'm really excited to see somebody like that going to the ISS. That's really cool.
1: Yeah, it's got, it's got to be nice seeing someone similar to you or with a similar background to you go to the ISS, which leads me on to the fact that it's the 30th anniversary of the first British person in space. Obviously, I've got a complete different background, uh, but we only have two British astronauts, so it's as close as I'm going to get at the moment. Uh, yes, yeah, the 30th anniversary since Helen Sharman's flight up to Mir, which is one of those stories that not enough British people know about. And she's had a little bit of press this week. So if you're a British person or even not, please check out a link to an independent article that I've uh, that was released today. It's really a good read. And yeah, just not enough people know about Helen Sharman. There's all the stories about Tim Peake and rightfully deserved. But Helen was the first up there, so we should celebrate her. Anyway, as we said at the top, 2021 is the 50th anniversary of both the Apollo 14 and 15 moon landing missions. So we were trying to figure out how we should celebrate those on the podcast. Well, fortunate enough, friend of the podcast, Max Keisman, came to the rescue. Uh, We interviewed him back on episode 15 to talk about his lunar replicas company. Uh, But he put us in contact with flight director Jerry Griffin. Uh, Now, this is... Just incredible and blew my mind when he first appeared in my inbox. Uh, We were able to spend a whole hour with him to talk about those missions.
0: This was really so much fun. Uh, Jerry is 86 years old and he still remembers every single detail as you're about to hear right now. Uh, We also asked Max to join us, and it was the best of times, so please listen.
1: It really was, and it was great having Max around as well. Although we don't hear too much from him during this interview, before and after, he was just a real relaxing figure to have around and made us all feel like old friends, which, when you're talking to one of your heroes, is actually really nice, as well as uh, helping Emily and I during the interview with some comments in the Zoom text chat. While Jerry was talking, so that was that was really great to having him around now, for those of you who may not know too much about Apollo Fourteen or fifteen spoiler alert they landed on the moon. They were the third and fourth lunar landings of the six in the Apollo program. Apollo Fourteen was commanded by Alan Shepard, who was the first American in space in nineteen sixty one We just celebrated the sixtieth anniversary of that flight. And that was just a short 20-minute suborbital flight, and it took him 10 years before he got this, his next assignment, because he'd been grounded with an inner ear problem. So he went from a 20-minute flight to a week-long lunar mission with a 10-year gap. That's really quite something. And his two, ma- two, <clears throat> and his two crewmates were both rookies as well. Edgar Mitchell was the lunar module pilot, and Stu Russo was the command module pilot. So even though Al was the oldest person to go to the moon, this team was arguably the most inexperienced. It's also perhaps most remembered for the fact that Shepard took the head of a six iron which he attached to one of the tools that they had on board and turned it into a golf club and he hit two golf balls on the moon. Uh, Apollo 15 was the first mission to have a lunar rover commanded by Dave Scott who had been on Gemini 8 with Neil Armstrong and also on Apollo 9 which was the Earth orbit mission which was the first crewed flight of a lunar module. Uh, he was also joined by two rookies. Jim Irwin was the Lunar Module Pilot and Al Warden was the Command Module Pilot, who also became the first person to perform a spacewalk in deep space during this mission. Another fun fact about this mission was that Jim Irwin had some pretty serious heart problems akin to a heart attack, but due to the fact that he was in 100% oxygen and zero gravity, he didn't seem to get too ill from this on board. Anyway, that was a very brief overview, so let's hear more from Jerry Griffin.
2: names down a miles, and miles, and
1: miles welcome Jerry Griffin thank you so much for joining us and welcome Max as well thank you for joining us and, and for introducing us to Jerry I appreciate that a lot um, so I have been following the 50th anniversaries of the Apollo program really closely over the over the last yeah, well, four years. Uh, and what <laughs> strikes me is the timeline. Things seem to happen so quickly after each other. Uh, and we're talking about Apollo 14 today, and it was only nine months after Apollo 13. And obviously, that was such a big mission that required a fairly decent-sized debrief, I imagine, was there any concern uh, that not everything had been fixed after that mission, or any post-traumatic stress issues that needed to be dealt with within Mission Control after such a crazy time of thirteen?
3: Uh, no, there wasn't. You know, it, it was funny from the time we started Apollo. Actually, from the, I got I got the NASA, we were just starting Gemini, and uh, from that time till Apollo seventeen, it just seems like a continuous period although we had the almost two years after the fire the apollo one fire and then we had the break uh after 13 i don't recall ever feeling like it was a uh, a break it was just continuous one thing is we were very busy between those huh? two periods the flights came rapidly they were close together roughly if you look kind of except for 1968 in or 1969, where we flew a bunch about every six months. I used to kid the astronauts, you know, they would go fly around the moon then come back and go off on a world tour. Uh, they would land, and about two days later, we were back at work, working on the next flight. And I said, you had it easy. They said, yes, we did. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a busy, busy schedule. Keep in mind, though, one other thing. We were all very young, uh, full of energy. Uh, We didn't feel like uh, we had to have a lot of time off. It felt like I had been in a fighter squadron uh, in the Air Force before I got to NASA. And it felt a lot that same kind of way. Um, We were doing it with family. It was, we were all kind of thrown together and, and our kids knew each other and, and and it was kind of like a family affair that, and boy, did it, it was busy. One final thing, this is a long answer, but one final thing, it was incredible what the spouses did during that period because we were, it was pretty much an all-guy process, and we, we just weren't around. We were 24-7 most of the time mm. um, on space flights. So the spouses picked up and they ran the house. They ran the banking, they, the cars, the little league, the soccer, whatever it was. They were they were in charge, and they I, I never heard one of them complain. It was really really interesting. So it was a big team effort uh, with a lot of. Uh, A lot of ups and downs, but uh, it was fun. It was fun all the way.
1: Whenever you hear any of you guys interviewed, it does always seem like you just had the best time and there was a lot of camaraderie there. But after 13, was there any feeling that anything needed to change within mission control or did you consider it all to be hardware problems and did you feel vindicated that what you had achieved within mission control with your systems and your testing had actually proven itself to be good enough to handle most scenarios?
3: yeah i I really think that by the time we flew 13, of course, we'd been out to the moon on eight, ten, eleven, and twelve. We'd been there four times, and we were beginning to feel not not placid about, but we were more comfortable with the transportation system. We thought we had that figured out, and how to operate it. Now thirteen came along and threw a hiccup in the middle of that because uh, when the tank exploded, of course, it was all bets off, and we got into an entirely different kind of operation. But you hit the nail on the head it was it was a hardware issue. Uh, we didn't change anything as I recall in the in the control center Now we did have to change a few things like for instance, they added a separate oxygen tank in the service module on the other side of the service module, away from the first two tanks. And that tank could be completely isolated from these two tanks, so that if one of them went, uh, you wouldn't. You could shut off everything over here, and you'd still have that O2. Um, they put a battery, a limb battery, a big one, about a, I think it was about 400 amp hours big one and they put a spare battery in the service module so we had more power so th- the kind of problem that we had on 13 we felt like we uh we could control another one a lot easier than we did this one we would still have to do something with with uh with the lithium hydroxide canisters uh, square pegging around hole, <laughs> and uh but we figured that was worth the risk, and we knew how to do that now and then.
0: I know Apollo 14 uh, had some issues as well. Uh, I know it had a docking issue. Was there ever a moment during that where it was like, oh, crap, you know, maybe this might not happen, too, for you during Apollo 14? And, and tell us why.
3: You're nailing uh, the docking issue. Uh, it was right after TLI, Translunar Injection, you got to get this command module off and hook it to the lunar module and extract the lunar module. Well, they um, tried it five times and uh, could not get the capture latches to uh, latch on to the limb lunar module. We were already thinking we may have an Apollo 8 kind of mission on right. our hand, command and service module only. We could have gone on to the moon and done something, but no landing. The guys in engineering and, and our guys in the control center had worked, said, look, let's just get you up against the capture latches, up against everything, then thrust the vehicle forward, literally pushing, and fire the, the, the final latches. Well, I did and it worked. It caught on to the to the rim. And pulled it in, and it was a good docking. And you know, they looked that thing, they looked that docking um, probe and drogue over, never could find anything wrong with it. And uh, they brought it back uh, to Earth so that it could be, normally we didn't do that, but they brought it back and um, they found out that sure enough, they couldn't find anything wrong on the ground. Mm. And so it was a kind of a mystery. The mission report says the most likely occurrence was contamination that got cleared. Something was in there blocking the capture latches. And when he thrust and bam, it made you know, it was a big boom, kind of a big latches uh, collapsing. And uh, that it probably cleared whatever was holding the capture latches. They decided after that they put a cover over the capture latches to keep the dirt and dust and piece of metal or whatever to from falling in them. Yeah, that that was just the first problem with fourteen, but that was a good one. It could have it it could have ended the mission of uh, the landing mission for sure.
1: I'm talking of the landing. Now, I have watched from the Earth to the Moon, and I must say you are beautifully portrayed in that. The likeness is great as well, but anyway, was the real landing as dramatic as the one that we see on the screen in that Tom Hanks produced docu series?
3: Yes uh,
1: <laughs> amazing!
3: We had actually two problems with with landing, and the first was was the abort switch uh, The crew had an abort switch. All they had to do, if they had to abort and come back up uh, away from the lunar uh, descent module, they just had to push a button and it automatically started the sequence and it and it would abort. Well, they were checking out, getting ready to land and that abort light came on at the abort switch. And when, it, when the light came on, that means it's on. So the abort light was on, and meaning that the abort. And sure enough, they traced traced it through, and yeah, the bit was set that uh, had they started the descent engine, they would have immediately aborted because that it, they computer thought that the crew had pushed the button. So we did exactly what you would do in your car <laughs> when engaged in work. We told them to tap on it, and they. <laughs> They tap. They tapped on it, and the light went out. And um, in a few seconds, it came back on. And we said, "Tap on it again." They tapped on it, and it went out. <laughs> and uh, we did that. I think I think we did it four times or five times. And pretty well concluded right away. There, the a switch. The switch had a solder ball or some piece of metal that was getting across the contacts, like the button was closed, like yeah, the switch was closed. So, you know, now, we're saying, now what do we do? Well, before we could even as, ask the question, there was a young guy at at uh, MIT, Draper Lab, young fellow that said he could write a code that they could insert, and it would bypass that abort switch. They could still abort, but it would take several keystrokes, three keystrokes, four keystrokes on the on the display and keyboard, but they couldn't just do it with a single button. So sure enough, he sent us the code, they sent us the code, and the Capcom read it up very slowly, and Ed Mitchell copied it very slowly, and then when he entered it, he entered it very very slowly, telling us what he was punching. And so anyhow, we put it in there, and he said, "Yep, now it's bypassed." So we said, "Okay, let's go land." And um, by the way, during the descent, the light came on again. It was off when they started, and it came on again. Had had we not had the bypass, it would have aborted him uh, right then and brought him back to the command module.
1: And that was automated. There would be nothing they could have done about that at no. that time. It just would have just would yep. have done it. Yep. Well,
4: similarly though, Jerry, uh, since they had bypassed it, they were no longer able to abort. Is that right? Yeah,
3: they were. They could do it with, I think it took, they had to go P 60 something. I can't remember the number of the program P 61 enter. So they had a back,
4: they had a back door to it. They had a
3: backup. They could have, they could have entered the abort program manually, (laughs) but it took three keystrokes. They could, they would have been able to make them pretty fast if, <laughs> if they had to have them. And uh, it wouldn't have been as fast as that red button. Um, well, then, so we started down, and like I say, that light did come on, but nothing happened because it was being ignored. Uh, the switch was being ignored. Um, and then the landing radar, which we had to have. We had a mission rule that said if you didn't have landing radar, that you would have to abort. That was the rule. The reason was the lunar surface very much like water, the the ocean. Uh, it's hard to get uh, reference unless you have something well known and very prominent, like a carrier. You might be able to uh, on water tell how high you are, and um, so the radar didn't work. Uh, it was. It finally it went into kind of a what I'd call a high gain mode without at the wrong time too. So what we had him do was, if, if you listen to the voice, it said, and this all happened probably in twenty five seconds, 25, 30 seconds. Um, we asked him to uh, pull the circuit breaker on the on the uh, landing radar. Now that that's just like rebooting your iPhone, you know, mm-hmm. it gives you something funny and so you say well heck so you reboot the whole thing and let it have a fresh start and it came back up and immediately locked on FIDO the flight dynamics officer had to make the call uh, tell him to take the radar he can accept it into the computer and it corrected the vector and gave him a very precise altitude above the surface and when you heard the lunar module calling out altitude he was calling the altitude off the landing radar because it was very precise, but here we go. Now. <laughs> so we had the abort, but well, we had the docking, we had the abort, button, then we had the landing radar. Finally, we got it on the ground. <laughs> and, uh, and after that, you know, that mission was really well done. They, uh, they were, they worked so hard. They didn't have a Rover. They had a thing they call the MET. It was kind of a, rickshaw, a lot of people called it a rickshaw, and, um, but it was just a two-wheel thing. They pulled it along, they could put tools and samples that they took. They could put it on there, but it was hard work. One of their major objectives was Cone Crater, and you hear that in the transcript a lot. They wanted to get to the rim of Cone Crater. The thing was a lot steeper, I think, than than people imagine. And they didn't quite make the rim, but they got close enough to get the eject. what they call the ejecta. The, when the crater was formed, it blew this stuff out. And it, it blew it out in a way that uh, they were within 75 feet, maybe of the rim. They got the samples that they wanted. They finally had to turn around and come back. We were telling them, you got to get back, because they were running out of, of uh, O2 in their backpack, and uh, we had some rules there too. So it was a fun mission. Those guys did a great job, um, and, we, and they, both of them huffing and puffing, and and uh, we had a we had a. They called the backpack the backpack was Supportable portable life support system, PLSS. So we called it the PLSS, and we had a little code with them. That you know, if we asked for a plus check, which they stopped and read us what they were reading on amount of water and amount of oxygen, we were telling them to slow down. And I, I recall it one time. I think I think Shepherd's um, heart rate was up around 160, and Ed was around 155. And we we more than once in that little segment of time. We said, "Give us a plus check, and they stopped and heart rates came back down and we got the same readings pretty much that we got the first time but but uh it was a way that we we didn't want to alarm them. we just wanted to tell them to slow down a little bit mm. and uh, and they they worked hard. that was a hard mission on them and then the funny thing about it, the fifteen came up next had to had the rover which made things a lot easier. (laughs)
4: They should have given the Rover to the old man. He was
1: 47. He liked a fast car as well, though. Maybe it was too slow for him.
3: He was 47 (laughs) years old. 47.
1: So the, the, the golf chip,
4: were you guys aware of that before?
3: uh... No, I think we all thought it was pretty cool, but, but, uh, you know, we didn't know none of us knew anything about it. And, uh, You know, we didn't know about Dave Scott on 15 where he dropped the hammer and the feather at the same time to see if they'd hit the ground at the same time. And they did. And uh, they always had something up their sleeve that they didn't tell us about.
0: (laughs) Does it frustrate you that um, Apollo 14 is a mission remembered mainly only for uh, a golf swing?
3: It does, Emily, because I think 14 got kind of lost in the shuffle between 13 and 15 with all the bells and whistles and it was extremely successful and um, and, and we also learned a lot about the, uh, uh, the lunar module and what we could do is another thing that we learned about you know bypassing the abort switch every time we had one of those it was a learning experience and and so it was it was a great mission and it, it did it kind of got lost. Here's the way I like to position 14. 14 was the start of a pivot point, at least a pivot point for mission control. And I think for the entire program, and I'll tell you what I mean, for the first several missions, our concern, our our central thought was get the crew out there and get them back safely. Now, we had done that enough, and then we were starting to get, as I said earlier, a little comfortable, more comfortable with how to do this because it never had been, been done. So we got a little more comfortable with how to do it. And 14 was a switch where we went to a very rugged area, which was very interesting for the lunar scientists. They were they were really excited about Fra Mauro because it was it was rugged, and that's what the geologists like the focus I could feel it shift in the control center that we were starting to think about exploration is the reason we're going and so we were focusing more on that as opposed to getting out there and back at the, just the transportation now we every time I say that I, I don't want anybody to think that we didn't keep our eye on the, on the safety of the crew and the hardware and all that but that just became it became a little easier for us. So it freed up some time to think about, well, why are we going and what are we trying to do? That pivot point was finished on Apollo 15. Um, at that point we had the rover. We went to some very interesting areas with big canyons like Hadley Rail on 15, Descartes, a very rugged area on 16, and then uh, taurus Litro on 17, all rugged, big stuff, house-sized boulders uh, around and things like that. So, and the other thing that happened is, and this, this is not on 14, but it, it finishes that pivot from 14, 15 uh, area. Dave Scott, I was lead flight director on Apollo 15. Dave Scott came to me probably within a week after 14 landed. And he said, Jerry, I think you ought to come out with us, the crew, he and Jim Irwin, and visit the, uh, and see what we do on these geology field trips. And I said, great idea, so I did. I learned more in that three days about lunar geology and geology and uh, I've never have figured out what word to use for the moon. It's really not, geo is earth, geology. This is a sidelight. Is it lunology? I don't know. That's why I (laughs) tend to call them. I don't call them geologists on the moon. I call them lunar scientists. But anyhow, I went out and I watched them, how they did it and what they were doing and how they sampled. And those guys were really good at it. They were. In fact, I was with one of the professors from Caltech that had trained a guy named Lee Silver. And he said, you know, these guys have studied this hard enough that if I had them at Caltech for a semester or two, uh, they would qualify for a PhD in geology. They're that good. And wow. mm. so I, it really excited me to watch how they did it, what they did, mm. and so forth.
1: Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that field trip. So I'm glad you brought that up. Now, I have one other Apollo 14 question before we move on to Apollo 15 and that's about Al Shepard a national hero the only one of the original Mercury 7 astronauts to go to the moon and he'd been grounded for 10 years with Meniere's disease. Was there a different vibe in mission control for this mission as a result of that? Were there more people around or was it just the same as the other missions?
3: Yeah, actually we were happy for him Um, when He was grounded because of his inner ear problem. He hung in there. I mean, he was with us. He was in the control center. uh, We all got to know him well. Al was a little different than some of the other astronauts. He wasn't as warm and cuddly and fuzzy. He was very (laughs) funny. But, you know, I had astronaut friends that were as close buddies as I've ever had. Al didn't fall in that category. But we all liked him, and he was... By the way, he never lived in the, down by the space center. He always lived up in Houston, uh, in a very nice part of town. So he was kind of separated from us anyway. But but he, uh, we were happy for him because he had hung in there. He had he had supported the missions. Uh, he was running the astronaut office for a while, and and uh, he was he was good. And so we were we were just glad to see him get a crack at it. Same thing with Deke. Slayton later in ASTP, uh, Apollo Soyuz. Uh, same thing. We were glad he got a crack uh, at, at getting a spade. He, that's his only space ride. <laughs>
1: So moving on to Apollo 15, and we're really now into the more science-based missions of the program. Uh, They were also able to stay on the moon for a lot longer due to some changes to the Saturn V, which meant they could take more weight, and they had the rover so they could travel further. Now, you mentioned that you were asked to go on the training field trips, but was there a lot more training for all of the mission control people with regards to the science and the lunology, as we now call it, (laughs) uh, or were there specialists brought in to help you out?
3: Good question. Yeah, um, we had some great guys in the control center. We had a whole, what we called a science room. It was a back room. Um, And we got to know several of those people. In fact, one of the people in that room uh, quite often was the guy I was telling you about. I was wandering along the the countryside in New Mexico uh, watching him. And his name was Lee Silver, but we had, uh, and he was from Caltech, but we had, Gene, early on, we had Gene Shoemaker from the universe, uh, USGS, the Geological Survey, Gordy Swan from the Survey, Bill Malberger from University of Texas, and we got to know those lunar scientists uh, just like uh, you know, just like they were uh, control guys, control center guys, and so they were extremely helpful during the the mission, and they helped us with the terminology and and things like that. I was uh, chatting not too long ago with Dave Scotta, uh, commander on 15. And I recall that Lee Silver, I was walking right along with him and he was following the crew, making, not talking to him. He wanted to make sure they did the right thing headed in the right direction, looking for the, the things they should have been looking for. And, he taught me so much geology. I cannot drive down a highway today where there's a cut in a mountain without looking at the strata to see if it's slump. <laughs> because he said, he, he pointed out, he said, you see that feature over there with all that stuff going down? I said, yeah. He said, that's a slump. That's a big slump. And so to this day, anytime I see a mountain that's been cut or something so I can see the strata, Uh I think of Lee Silver in the slump. So he would have been a professor that any of us would have loved to have had somewhere along the way because he had this just way of teaching that that was really good. And so I think those guys in real time, when we got to the mission, they trusted the crew, but they would make suggestions. And that would have to come to us because if they wanted to add something, add another sample, add another stop, even the... Uh, we would have to approve that, and we'd have to understand what they meant, mm. you know, because we want them to go find something in a rugged area and try to find a breccia uh, as opposed to a basalt. And uh, let's see, I just fooled you there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but but uh, it, it, understanding their language really helped the exploration piece of it, and uh, we didn't ha- we didn't take any classes or anything, but we did listen to them carefully. Yes. This is really a rock-and-roll ride, isn't it? Never been on a ride
2: like this before. Oh, boy, boy. I'm glad they got this great suspension system on this thing.
0: I do have a question. It's not really uh, mission-specific. As, as you know, uh, we've got the Artemis program nowadays that um, is slated to return to the moon. Um, and obviously, there's a lot of other things going on in human spaceflight. Do you think the lessons of Apollo and its moker leadership, I mean, you guys pioneered that. Do you think that's appreciated, really, truly appreciated today? I mean, what do you think its legacy is?
3: I do think it's appreciated. The um, I talk quite often with the head of the uh, flight director office now. is She happened to go to the same university I did, which makes us makes it nice she's about 40 years younger but um she is the head of the flight director office uh, holly ridings and she talks about it constantly that that you know what what we were able to do kind of set it never had been done before so that that helped uh, but we had great leadership that guys like chris Kraft and bob gilruth and George Lowe is a prominent name you hear, Rocco Patrone. Um, great leadership that, that envisioned how you might pull this off. And pretty much what they're doing now is the same. The flight directors, I feel a little sorry for the flight controllers uh, post Apollo because they didn't get to go anywhere except low Earth orbit. And while that's not easy to get to, it to stay there, and kind of, I'll say bore holes. They're more than that, but it's it's not the same. It's not as fun as maneuvering to head for the moon and <laughs> mid course corrections and landing. And and I, I keep telling Holly and her her people uh, when I get a chance to talk to them, you're going to find it's a lot different. Uh, it's dynamic. I mean, there's something happening all the time. Even when the crew's sound asleep, you know, you're working your rear end off. Uh, you know, are we going to miss that? We we aim for the moon about 60 miles away from it. That's a pretty close miss. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. and you got to make sure you got it right. And um, so people are checking in, double checking. And, and uh, <laughs> I remember, I think it was Lovell on Apollo 8 said, first time out there and he said I hope you guys got us uh, aimed right because he said that moon is getting awful big <laughs> out the window and uh, 60 miles not very far you know so uh, but but I think all in all the, the young people down there today are just as good as we were they just need the mission and need to, need to get on with it um, the, I think the country in general and and specifically in things that are hard to do or a little more risk adverse, uh, and and we're not we're not going to see. I don't think we'll see the bold steps that we like Apollo Eight. Golly, what a bold step that was mm-hmm. to take off for the moon, first time on a Saturn Five. Uh, people on top of it. Um, and the mission before had, had two major problems in the Saturn Five that. Marshall guys said they could fix it, and they did, and they were trusted, and they we went. But those kind of decisions probably aren't going to be made. The other thing is going to be a lot different, I think, Emily, is a lot more automation in the spacecraft, much cleaner spacecraft. Um, I was just in the the one that Lockheed is talking about, uh, the lander, and there's hardly anything in it. It's mostly a computer screen, and and you know you don't have rows and rows of switches and circuit breakers and steam gauges and things like that. That's what we call the round gauges with the needle. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. I, I was in the military, so I've, okay, I've seen the old it. school gauges yeah. before. Yeah, old, the, yeah. old school. They're not that old, but yeah, yeah. I've seen
3: them. <laughs> but you, the, the inside of that spacecraft that is the is the uh, Lockheed. Uh, proposal. Thing. It looks it looks kind of like the dragon wow. uh, that we saw on SpaceX. It not much there. Touchscreen, a lot of touchscreen stuff. Mm.
4: Jerry, you talk about the young folks working in the program now. Uh, this, I hope this isn't a sensitive topic, but how old were you when you yeah. when you started working in mission control, and what was the average age uh, controller?
3: When I when I got there, I was twenty nine. And and I was about four years older than everybody else because I'd spent four years flying in the Air Force. So, and Kranz was about the same age. Lonnie was two years younger than I was. Wimmer was about that age. So, and Kranz and Wimmer had also been in the Air Force. But, so we were all in our mid-30s, early to mid-30s. We had guys in the control center who were 23, 24. John Aaron came out of college at Southeastern Oklahoma State Teachers College, or something, with a degree in physics, and came straight to us. And uh, him, I mean, he was young, but we had a lot of young guys. And you know, I think it was a big advantage because we we had the ability to uh, no no prior uh, knowledge of how to do something. And guys like Chris Crafton say, You guys figure it out. You know, he didn't hand it to us. He said, Figure it out. So that was a great learning environment. And that's where I think the young kids today, the younger kids, are going to miss because it's much more structured, as you guys know. The, there's a lot more structure to everything. And, and when, and I'll give you an example I was I at was GNC, I was 29 when I got there, and I was a guidance, navigation, and control systems guy. And I did that for all of Gemini, and I was getting ready to do it for Apollo, when, and I was in the control center the night the fire happened. And um, we were down for almost two years. In that period, I was working on the spacecraft, doing a lot of stuff at Downey in California. But during that period, Kraft decided that he needed three flight directors and in those days if he wanted you to be a flight director he just reached out and plucked you out and said you're a flight director (laughs) and put you on that square um i was i was honored and 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 so there were six of us that went into apollo with glenn lunny's death now there are three of us left but the kids in the in that control center looked up to us as the old guys you know and shoot they're 30 32 and uh, I, I can tell you that it, and some of it, you've probably heard me say this, even the even the bad times, and I know this sounds crazy, it was fun, it was a challenge, it was a hoot. Uh, we had more fun as, and we had responsibility at the kazoo and didn't bother us because we didn't, they were too, too young to know we had that much responsibility. It was uh, an interesting makeup of people and it probably, it, it can't be done that way again because the society has changed and we're, we're more careful and not all bad, not all bad. There'd be differences, but the people are still as good as, they, they're just as good as they ever were.
1: We have a couple of quick fire questions, if that's all right. We we have uh, this this Patreon sure. page where people support us and, and we've asked them if they've got any questions. Mm-hmm. I've got one and, and I think uh, Emily's got one as well. So I'll start with this one. This is from Amar. Uh, and he says that he's, uh, he's amazed whenever he, he reads or hears the transcripts of the missions, how calm and collected everyone is. Um, and did you have a specific way to keep yourself grounded during missions? I love that he's used that word. Um, or did it come naturally to you?
3: It it came naturally, but not naturally from inside each individual. I think each individual uh, liked the challenge and they liked the action and all that. But the success of and the reason it sounded sometimes as calm as it did when it really was pretty active was the training that we had. It was the simulations, and I'm still amazed at the quality the fidelity of the simulations that we had in the 60s and 70s. It was incredible. Mm. We would have a crew off in a simulator command module or, or lunar module connected electronically to the control center. To us, it looked just like a real mission. We had all the data. The simulation guys could throw errors in. They were in between us, and they could throw errors in that – that uh, Would simulate the loss of a oxygen tank or something, or a battery, or three batteries, or whatever. And they would they ran us to the to our knees. We we got. In fact, the flights were a lot easier than the simulations, (laughs) except except for Apollo (laughs) thirteen. The flights were easier than the simulations. Simulations were like running on a beach. With combat boots in deep sand, <laughs> and then the the flights were like putting on tennis shoes and going on the concrete and running uh, <laughs> fast. The uh, but the training, the repetitive over and over training, you just learned. You learned after a while to kind of swallow any tendency to panic. It just didn't happen. It. What have we got? What do we got to deal with? And then what are the options? Let's pick one. Yeah. And and so it was kind of an orderly, um, and actually, that's what we did on Apollo 13. Kind of took it step by step and then finally figured out what it was going to take to get them home. So it, it's a good question because when Ron Howard listened to the Apollo 13 tapes, he, he said it sounded like a normal mission. Well, mm. I thought that was a that was a compliment. I'm, I'm glad it sounded that way. It didn't feel that
0: way. <laughs> uh, we have one more question from uh, Toby Jeffries. Uh, how did you find working with a Capcom uh, like Fred Hayes uh, as somebody who had who had been up there, uh, especially on Apollo 13? Um, could that create tensions between the flight directors and Capcoms, where the Capcoms had you know sort of an edge of experience?
3: No. In fact, exactly the opposite. Um, the Capcoms, all of them were, were really, really good. Um, they were ops guys, they were f- pilots, and they'd flown and they knew how to make things work. Operations to me, by the way, a definition of operation is make something work that somebody else designed and somebody else built, but you got to figure out how to make it work. That's where the operations come into, and those guys were all oriented that way. They were all good friends for one thing. And it was great. It was nice to have a, a Capcom that had been, had had flown. Uh, They could anticipate. They didn't they never tried to take over anything like that. In fact, if they got an input from Deke could Slayton, their big boss could have been sitting right beside him. And if they got an input from, him said, I think we ought to do so-and-so. They would turn to the flight director and say, can we do so-and-so? You know, whatever mm-hmm. it was. Uh, Deke thinks it might be a good idea. And so the flight director would have to sign off on it. Um, or, and just usually, yeah, go ahead. Uh, but they were great to work with and and really, really good friends. Fred, Fred Hayes, you picked a, a jewel there
4: did you say once Jerry, I, I believe I overheard you once at space fest, maybe saying that, uh, Charlie Duke was more like a, um, flight controller that would fly than he was a, an astronaut that sat in flight control.
3: Well, that's what I said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Charlie, you know, did Apollo 11, uh, and then he went on to do other things too, before he flew on 16, but, uh, he was a great Capcom, great communicator. And, uh, so I, I told him, I said, you're just a flight controller that happened to be an astronaut. Uh, he, could have, he could have filled any position in that room uh, really good.
1: One question I, I've been wanting to ask is when, when all this was happening, did you realize the weight of what you were doing historically? And- no. Did you th- imagine that fifty years later you'd be you'd be still discussing it and people would be this passionate about it still?
3: I really, I eventually understood the historical significance, but I, I talked earlier about the fact we were flying so rapidly and turning around and, and doing it, and and it was, it was we were so busy I didn't have time to reflect on what we were doing. And, you know, we, we didn't spend any time talking about the Russian or the Soviet Union. Uh, we didn't have time for that either. Uh, it was kind of a, you know, we got our own ball game to play, and we better play this one right or not worry about what they're doing. And um, so all of that was going to the space race. When knew it was happening. We knew the, you know, the, and they were good, and they had beaten us to the punch on a couple, three or four significant issues. But none of us ever focused on that now when I look back on it and probably this happened ten years later I said Holy my goodness we went you know we went and landed on the moon six times and uh, didn't leave anybody there <laughs> and uh,
1: and you were at the console yeah. for three of the landings
3: three of the landings and and uh, but it it was it was an amazing accomplishment and to think about it, now i can see i can kind of see why people thought gee whiz that, that that's amazing that they did that 50 years ago now 50 years ago i didn't think i'd even be vertical probably <laughs> 50 years you know and uh, but I'm, I'm in good health and uh, i'm gonna keep going so that's a good it's a good perspective i i don't think a lot of guys say, oh yeah, I know, I knew we were doing something historical. Well, yeah, in the abstract, going to land on another place, yeah, that, that's pretty historically significant. But the specifics of what we did and the time frame, we did it with two major, and that's the other thing, the fire in Apollo 13. And we kept going, both cases. It could have stopped either, either one. Mm-hmm. could have stopped. Mm-hmm. And uh, And that was leadership that did that, I think. And the fact that Kennedy had set a goal that people believed in. So anyway, that's my philosophy. (laughs) That's my philosophy, listen.
1: And I think that's the perfect place to end this interview. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today. That was awesome. Okay,
3: well, thank you guys. I, I was glad to have Max along too. Are you guys planning to come into Space Fest? I'm coming. Yeah, I like it. I'll all three of you.
1: Uh, I'm not sure I'll be able to get over from the UK. I'm not sure how that's going to work. Well, yeah,
4: we'll just get Jim's private jet.
1: while we'll,
3: uh, we'll <laughs> swoop everybody
1: up. <laughs> if he wants to come and get me, I'll happily have that. <laughs>
3: Max, we we need you to get um, a private jet. And then you, you're starting on the East Coast, so you can just come across I'll and get all of up. us on the. <laughs> way. That'll be.
4: I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> load that thing up with gin and vodka and everything. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I want to be on it. Hello, Houston. The Endeavor is on station with cargo, and what a fantastic sight. Beautiful news. Romantic, isn't
0: it? Oh, this is really profound. I'll tell you, it's fantastic. So, what did you think of that?
1: Well, that was just one of the highlights of my life right there. Absolutely amazing. Of course, uh, for those listening now, if you're one of our patrons, you can go and watch the full unedited video. There was a lot more. We had spoke a whole lot about Apollo 13 as well and uh, a whole lot more. And you get to see my beaming face throughout the whole thing. Uh, That's up on the the Patreon page now. But what a great man he is. Such an incredible memory on him. Uh, It looks great. I can't believe he's 86. Uh, still flying, and uh, it, it was just incredible. absolute incredible. So glad we got to do that.
0: Yeah, those guys aged spectacularly. I'm like, I, I want some of that space face serum, whatever they used up there. <laughs> I was struck at just the guy's memory. Like, he was uh, yeah. 14. I don't know as much about as probably 15, just because 14 is kind of one of the less celebrated lunar missions, which is kind of weird, kind of sad, probably because all the guys from it, are gone. Unfortunately, we don't have any yeah. of the uh, crew members alive. Uh, I tell you what, like everything that I probably didn't remember, he just filled right in because he remembered all of it to the T. I'm like, it's been 50 years and you remember this like the back of your hand. That is nuts. So it really shows you the kind of people that they had working during Apollo and, and in charge. They, they really uh, knew their stuff and they didn't forget any of it. So nice incredible
1: yep and i'll tell you what he was just the nicest person to deal with from the moment max hooked us up with the emails and i tell you what getting emails from jerry griffin in your inbox is really quite delightful but the moment that happened he's just been so wonderful we had a few delays with various things and he was always so good and just amazing they say don't meet your heroes but if you ever meet jerry griffin he's not gonna let you down true hero for me oh
0: yeah he was uh he's awesome i, I did meet him a few years ago at a uh, space fest i remember it was 2017 and i was he uh he actually talked to me because if you're in space hipsters you probably are aware we have a joke it's called about a uh, bad bobby lausma it's uh jack lausma's <laughs> evil twin it's a long story i won't get into it here jerry noticed all this going on because people were like yeah bad bobby you know so jerry's like what is this thing about bad bobby and he approached me and i was like terrified because i'm like it's jerry griffin like talking to me (laughs) so immediately i turned into like a 10 year old and i was like yes sir like really quiet and i think there's pictures of this encounter somewhere i think john duncan took pictures but I just thought it was funny because, like, now I look back and I'm like, why was I so scared of him? Like, he is literally, he's one of the nicest, most approachable guys. Like, I have no idea. I think I just saw the name and I just, my brain exploded or something like that. And he was really funny uh, (laughs) because... he was like, should there be a bad flight controller? I'm like, yeah, maybe bad Gene crayons or something. Like. And he's like, yeah, like a hippie Gene crayons with like dirt all over him or something. I just kind of lost it, but that was awesome. He is genuinely the real deal. He's really
1: cool. And talking of the real deal, Max Kaiserman is also the real deal. Not a replica, unlike his amazing things that he sells on Lunar Replicas. And that, now, I promise you, that was all me. He's not asked me to do any of that, but I love that guy, and I love what he he does on his store. Uh, so thank you very much, Max, for setting up that interview and I hope we get to do a load more stuff with you in the future.
0: Yeah, thank you very much. That was awesome. Thank you. 14,
2: Houston. Hello, Houston. Call
4: 14. That's your alley, loud your loud
1: player, Houston. Okay, on, a good brand. Good on the way home. Okay, so the news section. And first up. Last week I mentioned a Kinet x mission which was launching from Wallops Island and I said that I didn't know what a sounding rocket is. Well, first up, the mission eventually launched on Sunday night and was successful. Secondly, I did my research and the NASA website has the following definition. Sounding rockets take their name from the nautical term... To sound, which means to take measurements. And since 1959, NASA sponsored Space and Earth Science Research has used sounding rockets to test instruments used on satellites and spacecraft to provide information about the sun, stars, galaxies, and Earth's atmosphere and radiation. These are 30 minute suborbital missions. They go up, they come down, we get test results sounding rockets. Now I know, and maybe you do too.
0: Yes, I knew a little bit about them. There's, if you uh, read about James Van Allen, the, uh, the scientist, he, he worked a lot with those. So it's, it's kind of neat to read about if you're into that. All right. There have been three other orbital launch attempts this week, and unfortunately, the first one was a failure. On Saturday, May 15th, the U.S. company Rocket Lab launched one of their electron rockets from New Zealand on a mission called, quote, running out of toes. Unfortunately, something went wrong. On the second stage, uh, engine, causing a mission failure and the loss of two Earth observation satellites, which were being put into orbit for a company called Black Sky. Um, Unfortunately, this is the second failure in a year for the Electron rocket, even though it has had 18 successful flights. A timely reminder that space is hard.
1: Yeah, I really want this company to do well.
0: I felt terrible seeing this. I felt bad for them. Sometimes in the past, when certain companies have had rockets fail... I noticed people like on Twitter will kind of make fun of them and stuff. It's never funny when that happens because a lot of money usually gets lost. Yeah, Like that's usually like a, and I look at it too as, okay, a lot of people probably worked on these projects for years and all the, you know, and because of a, a, a launch failure, it went up in smoke within like a few seconds, yeah. you know? But um, I noticed everybody on Twitter was kind of like, man, I, I hope, we really want them to succeed and we're really sorry like everybody seemed universally like we feel bad for them you know and stuff like that so I hope uh everything else goes flawlessly and I just want to remind people you know every rocket company has had their share of failures if you look at SpaceX they have if you look at um ULA and the company that came previously to ULA they had Things that either partially failed or didn't go quite as planned. These things happen. Uh, Space is never going to be... It looks easy, you know, when it's going right, but it's not.
1: Yeah, I saw some of the tweets from some of the staff who work for the company and it was just heartbreaking. You can't imagine what it must be like for them going through this. But hopefully they'll get back on their feet soon and uh, we wish them all the best because we we like this company. Yeah. So we also had a Falcon 9 launch on the 15th of May from Florida, which put another 52 Starlink satellites into orbit. And they also put two other smaller satellites for private companies into orbit as well. And while we're recording this on Tuesday the 18th of May, we've had a launch today. And uh, this time by the United Launch Alliance at Cape Canaveral of a Centaur rocket, and this was the 258th flight of this rocket, which is crazy numbers. Uh, It deployed a missile detection satellite designed to provide early warning to the United States and their allies if any missiles are launched.
0: We also had another rover land on Mars this week. Uh, China's Zhurong, I think that's it, rover, which is part of the Tianwen-1 mission touchdown on May 14th. This is the first time that China has landed on mars and their first attempt to so nice work um unfortunately we've not seen any images yet from the rover and while this was all happening uh it's really a timely reminder of how lucky we are that nasa broadcasts all of their events live whether they're successful or not um it's really hard to feel connected to a mission when all you get is delayed reports from various news stations with no view of the people working the mission on earth Anyway, it's uh scheduled to start driving around Mars on May 21st or 22nd and hopefully we'll start to see some images soon. As the images they eventually shared from the orbiter were absolutely delightful.
1: Yeah, it, I think that's a really good point. It's not a it's not a criticism of what they're doing. I just we just want to feel part of it. You know, I, I'm yeah. so happy that they've landed. I just want to see, be, be be part of it. I want to see the expressions. That's part of the fun of all of this. When we talked about Perseverance landing, we were so excited. And we we at that point, we hadn't seen the footage that we later saw. Yeah. But just being in the room with these people who'd worked so hard on it and seeing their elation was was magical.
0: Let's say even if, you know, they had, they had failed.
1: And we've been in the room for plenty of them as well.
0: We've been in that spot a lot before. I, I think people... Forget, you know, it seems like, oh, we have all these successes now. We landed on Mars and yada, yada, yada. It's really hard to land on Mars. Um, I don't think the Russians have ever successfully landed something on Mars. That's not a diss against the Russian space program at all. That's really just saying how hard it is to do something like that. Mars isn't like landing on Earth or the moon. Yeah. Uh, it's a completely different environment. I don't know. I agree with you. It, it, it would be nice to see at least their reactions of like joy or something but i i agree with you i think it really speaks to how um open our society is and how nice it is to sort of see even if let's let's say god forbid you know let's say we had a mission that was a failure i mean we've had that we've had mars missions failures before it's at least nice to know about it like okay you know this is not fun but we'll Pick ourselves up and move back yeah. on. I guess and, and sh- it's nice and, to know about and, it
1: and share the pain. I think I think it helps people become more connected to the space program uh, uh, and the idea that that this is hard work and and that people put a lot of time and effort into this. I think it's hard. It's it's so much easier just to dismiss it that it's even happening when you're not there and feeling like you're part of it. Um, so yeah, exactly. I, I don't know how we deal with that. It's their decision. But uh, alas, that's what we've got to live with. Now, also, there's been plenty of announcements this week. Uh, We spoke earlier about the Crew 3 mission and the final crew member for that. But the Discovery Channel has announced that they're going to have a reality (laughs) TV show, Emily, to pick an astronaut to launch to the ISS with a private company called Axiom Space, who we've spoke about before. The show is called Who Wants to Be an Astronaut? The Discovery oh no. Channel is just not what it used to be.
0: Uh, I'm not competing on this because somebody's like, you should you should sign up. And I'm like, nobody needs to see how much of a psychopath I am in real life. So I'm not doing this. Uh, yeah, I don't want to be on YouTube with a bunch of clips like the best of Emily or some crap. I don't need that.
1: I don't need that. I can make that video.
0: My husband would probably sell it too. He probably would... He probably would, he'd be like, whatever, I'm in on it because I don't care. She's nuts. So, (laughs) hey more power to
1: him there. Excellent. I'll I'll send him a message. Get those clips. Um, (laughs) Elsewhere, Russian act... uh, This is a fun story as well. We talked about this recently. Elsewhere, Russian actress Yulia Peresild has been selected to join film director Klim Shipenko to head to the ISS on the next Soyuz mission to shoot scenes for a movie which is currently being called Challenge. As I said, we mentioned this before, but they've now announced the actress involved. Also, Japanese billionaire Yusaku Maezawa, who we've met before on this podcast because he has booked a SpaceX Starship flight to take him and some passengers to the moon and back in a couple of years. I have... Applied, but not heard back, so guessing I haven't got it. Anyway, he has now booked a ticket to the ISS on a Soyuz rocket in December. This is a mission organized by a Virginia-based company called Space Adventures. Space tourism has well and truly arrived.
0: Man, I wish I had enough disposable income that I could just do that. Like like booking a plane trip or yeah. something like that. Like, yeah, I'm just going to contact Roscosmos and get a ride on the next Soyuz. Like, what? Yeah. That is nuts. Okay, I'll go to the next news story. I just wish I had that amount of disposable income. Me too. All right, that would be awesome. And finally, talking of Starships, SpaceX have announced that by the end of 2021, they will have launched their first uncrewed orbital mission of the new rocket. It will launch from their Boca Chica location and splash down near Hawaii. So we've got that to look forward to as well. They're normally pretty good at broadcasting these things, so this will be one of those internet moments you'll probably not want to miss.
1: Yep, hopefully we'll get the date for that soon, and as soon as we know more, we'll let you know. Ron, you're you
3: not going to believe this. It, it looks uh, just like the map.
1: So that's all for this week. It's a a longer show, but with all this news and with such a great guest, it would have been rude not to be. Uh, Don't forget, you can find out more about any of the news stories in our show notes. Just check your podcast provider or check our website, spaceandthingspodcast.com, where you can also find links to join our Patreon page or buy some merchandise.
0: And of course, our marketing budget is still very much zero. So please help us (laughs) out by telling your friends about the podcast and spreading the word for us. Uh, We say it every week, but we really do appreciate all of your support, however you choose to give it. And all that's now left is to remind you that in space, no one can hear you mean.
1: Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.